The reading is taken from Daniel 2, verses 1 to 18. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dreams and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you're trying to gain time because you realise that, that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what the dream is, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look, out, to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Thank you very much, Una. How do we react in seemingly impossible situations? A series of bills that we can't hope to pay off family quarrel that seems to have no resolution to it, a season of unemployment that seems to have no end to it, an addiction that keeps coming back to haunt us, a task at work that feels totally beyond us. How do we react in such seemingly impossible situations? But it was the last of those sorts of scenarios, a difficult situation at work, that Daniel faced 2,623 years ago, that is in 602 BC, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, an impossible situation which unfolded gradually in the court of the king of Babylon. At the 9.30 service, we had a dramatized reading of that little dialogue that we just read out from Daniel chapter 2. Uh, let us try and reimagine uh, how people would have been feeling in that situation. So the king had a dream, 
and he summoned his advisors to ask them what it meant. So the advisors showed willing, they're used to this sort of scenario, that's what they're there for, to advise the king on his thoughts. May the king live forever, they declared, uh, expression of enthusiasm at being summoned to the royal presence. They were pretty confident in their ability to give the king what he wanted that day, an interpretation to his dream. Tell your servants the dream, they said, and we will interpret it. Simple as that. But the king wasn't interested in an interpretation. He wanted the interpretation. This can't have been any run-of-the-mill dream. It must have been a very special dream for the king, or maybe he was just in a mood. Because rather than set out the details of the dream, he did two things in verse 5 of our reading. Firstly, he raised the stakes by telling the advisors to recite the details of the dream to him rather than him reciting them to them. And secondly, he raised the stakes by introducing a penalty for incorrect recitation and interpretation. Now, that must have come as quite a shock to these enthusiastic advisors. They were probably used to hearing the vague details of a few vague thoughts or dreams of the king, half-remembered from the night before, and giving him a vague interpretation. I think we all know the quotation, vague questions get vague answers. That's probably what they were used to in the court of Babylon, and then hiding behind the vagueness. The idea there might be a wrong interpretation to the king's dream was probably quite alien to them. Who was to say, more than them, the wise men of Babylon, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the enchanters, who was to say, apart from them, who was right or wrong in such questions? And the advisors probably thought the king was just enjoying a, a wild idea, so they pressed him in verse 7. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream, and then we will interpret it. But King Nebuchadnezzar was firmly decided. There was no going back on his demand. He wanted both the recitation and the interpretation. And he suspected, and may, may have done for some time actually, that these interpreters, these advisors were just charlatans. They were just making it up as they saw fit. And maybe up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar had gone along with them making it up. He had played along with the system. He had kind of uh, let the Babylonian mysticism go its own way. But now, a couple of years into his kingship, he's at the top of the social tree in Babylon, and he's calling the shots. And he no longer feels the need to kowtow to the traditions of his ancestors and the ways of the court. So he calls time on their cultic beliefs, calls their bluff. And so now the advisors are more than just shocked, they are terrified. Here was an intimidating challenge to their legitimacy and to their lives. Can you hear the notes of both incredulity and increasing desperation in verse 10? There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks, they said. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. But Nebuchadnezzar was hearing none of it. He was firmly decided, remember. He knew he'd exposed his advisors and was clearly quite fed up with them. And so now he's ordering their execution. But among the junior ranks of the Babylonian advisors were several young men recently extracted, as we saw last week in chapter one, 
from Judea, a new province of the empire. They might not have been senior enough to be in the room when the king at first released his dream, but they were part of this system, this group of mystical advisors who were going to face the penalty for not living up to their names. So for Daniel, this was, as we said at the start, a pretty desperate situation at work, an impossible task. How is he going to react? A king who demanded to be told what his own dream was on penalty of death, a king motivated to such extreme measures by annoyance at a system that Daniel had been absorbed into against his will, and a king's sentence already issued without any recourse to Daniel. It's like being accused of something you didn't do and then told the penalty for that is death and being told by your executioner with the decision having already been made. I wonder if you can imagine the scene in maybe the library or the scriptorium in Babylon all those years ago. Daniel and his friends, junior members of this mystical Babylonian group of advisors, quietly working away at their scrolls or their clay tablets, and then in a commotion, in comes a band of armed soldiers, and they start taking the advisors away, who previously had this august position in the Babylonian system, and now they're being dragged, kicking and streaming, to the dungeons and to their deaths. Well, what would you do? This is quite an extreme work situation. I don't think any of our officers have probably looked like that. Um, but who knows, maybe one day somebody will barge in and start dragging people away. Well, the British response might be to maintain a stiff upper lip, to keep calm and carry on, to go quietly to an uncomplaining death, gruesome though it may be, with our honour intact. Now, the keep calm bit might be applied here, but Daniel certainly didn't just carry on. He did two things instead, which are worthy of our note this morning. Firstly, he acted in faith. So verse 16 he made an appointment to see the king to appeal against this abrupt and harsh decision. And secondly, perhaps more importantly, Daniel prayed, not just on his own, but with others. He went to his friends and said, let's implore God for mercy. Verse 17, he went to his house, he asked his friends to pray, and he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. In other words, he organized an impromptu church prayer meeting. This is a right response to an impossible, to a desperate situation. Nothing on earth would enable Daniel to do what the magicians had been asked to do by the king, to tell the king what was in his head. We had a little game at the 9.30 service called, What's in my head? And surprise, surprise, nobody in the congregation was able to tell me what color I was thinking of, what European city I was thinking of, or what make of car I was thinking of. None of us can do this impossible task of knowing what's in somebody else's head. More than human will was required to turn away the anger of the king. It's a common saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. I'm sure we've come up with that sometimes with friends before. When up against it, and particularly when the it is enemy fire on the battlefield, then the obvious thing to do, the natural human inclination, is to pray. Sometimes we feel a bit guilty about doing that because we're reminded of how little actually we do pray in the non-desperate situations, in the times when we're not up against it. 
Daniel was probably thinking the same thing. He was thinking, it's right to go and praise God in this situation, although it does remind me of actually how little I've been praying the rest of the time. But sometimes God allows emergencies to bring us nearer to him deliberately, to prompt our prayers and our reliance on him. How fervently those four Jews must have been praying in 602 BC. However much or little we have prayed in the past, God always delights to hear our prayers, both individually and collectively, our humble prayers and petitions to him. And we can be confident he does hear them, even when it's not clear how or whether the prayer is to be answered. What's perhaps less natural for us is praying with others. Appealing to friends and supporters to strive in prayer alongside us. Some of us are excellent at doing this. Some of us, it's a a fairly natural inclination to reach out to friends who are Christians and ask them to pray in difficult times. But others 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 of us do need more encouragement and we tend to be a bit more private about things and we do need the spur to actually go out and ask others for help in striving in prayer in a situation. Of course, it takes some humility to do that, and that's definitely something that's challenging. But when we do it, the Holy Spirit does strengthen us, whatever the answer is. Later, we're going to be obviously praying together as part of Holy Communion, and certainly we'll be strengthened by that. And it's a wonderful thing to, thing to do together, to pray in this setting and in many other settings as well. Now, the four Jews here are back in Babylon, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they had no idea what would happen when they prayed. They probably expected to die that day, a grisly, unpleasant death. All they could do was pray and act in faith in that situation, trusting, as we actually sang earlier in the service, in the Lord's unfailing love. A friend of mine was recently up against what seemed like a desperate situation for him, an impossible situation. He wrote an email as follows. We are struggling. The house sale was more stressful than typical. I'm sure we know that sort of situation. An incident at my wife's work has caused her extreme stress and anxiety when she was feeling ill anyway and triggered a PTSD relapse. Following the house move, everything is chaotic, losing things, no internet, phone data running out, none of our usual friends around to help out, the toddler, name redacted, is still waking up at 5 a.m. We are both exhausted. I'm only managing to hold it together sporadically. We need miraculous intervention for what seems like a case of spiritual attack, just as we have moved to a spiritually deprived area to begin a new ministry. That email went out to a group of prayer supporters by email, and they were urged to plead for mercy in the words of our passage today, urged to plead for mercy to the God of heaven. And wonderfully, many of us did pray urgently. Meanwhile, my friends and his family acted in faith and trusted in the Lord's unfailing love. And the following week, I'm glad to say, he wrote again as follows. Within a few minutes of sending our last email, people said they were praying. That night we slept well. We both woke feeling much less anxious and sleep deprived. We've continued to improve. My wife is much more herself and I felt able to start work this week. We attribute this to the power of prayer. I'm sure many of us will know similar stories of the power of prayer at work. 
not all of us have faced or will face crisis points like that. And certainly, uh, very few of us will have faced crisis points like the one that Daniel and his friends faced in Babylon all those years ago. But we will all have challenges in life, both personal and spiritual. And God certainly isn't a, a magic genie to pull out and suddenly make things better. But he is a father, a loving father, who wishes our best and to whom we can turn whenever. Whether he grants our prayers or not, it's right to turn to him and to act in faith in the meantime. Perhaps the biggest challenge that all of us face is that of unbelief, the ignorance of and rejection of Jesus in the world around us. And if nothing else drives us to action and to prayer, then surely that does. If nothing else brings us to seeking mercy from the Lord, surely that does. So I'm excited that we began this week, or we resumed this week, our uh, usual weekly and monthly church prayer meetings. And that'll be a wonderful thing to continue this year, particularly as we look forward to a large national mission, Passion for Life, at Easter uh, next year in 2022, and seek the mercy of the Lord uh, as we reach out to those around us as part of that national mission. Well, let's turn to the Lord now in prayer and seek his face. God, our Father, we thank you for the example of Daniel and his faithfulness in crisis. We thank you for fellow Christians who pray together with us. May we seek them and respond to their calls whenever we face great challenges. In Jesus' name, amen.